Awesome. One more time. Awesome. There we go. Awesome. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Church. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Bill Walker. The rest of you who do know me, you know me. I'm glad you're all here today because we are in the midst of what has been a, a, a refreshing, fun series for me to prepare and to deliver. I hope it's been fun for you to receive because we are talking about I love... Sunday. One more time. I love... Sunday. I believe you. I'm really starting to believe you. This isn't just something I'm making you say, but I think you're actually starting to realize the beauty, the beauty of God's wisdom and grace to give us this very special day. You know, for those of us who have attended church for a long time, Sundays can just be another one of those things that you do out of a sense of habit. I hope this series has helped to refresh that it's not habit that we do this out of. We do it out of love. We do it out of excitement. We do it out of joy. And if you're new to the Christian faith or this whole concept of Sundays, I hope these concepts are powerful for you. Because this whole series is about making Sunday the best day of the week. And when we kicked off this series, we talked about how God, in his wisdom, actually designed the universe in a particular way where there is time for extreme effort and there's time for necessary rest. And we considered how if we will step into God's intended rhythm for life, getting at least seven hours of sleep a night, and one day in seven for physical rest and spiritual refreshment, that's how we cope with life. That's how we deal with the stresses of life. That's how we manage to get along in a world that often feels very unmanageable. God knew what he was doing, amen? God in his love and his mercy and in his grace gave us this gift called Sundays. Uh, two weeks ago when we were together, we talked about how Sundays are this unique opportunity in the midst of the relentless undertow of time, designed to give us a sanctuary in the greater rush of time. Sunday, worship is a sanctuary. It is a kairos, an opportunity. It's like Rivendell for the Fellowship of the Ring. And again, I love the way that Tolkien put it about them landing in this place in spite of the dark forces that were around them. He said this, the future, good or ill, was not forgotten. I don't expect you to forget all of the things that are on your plate. I don't expect you to forget that you've got all those deadlines coming up this coming week. I don't expect you to forget all the hardships of life. But on Sunday morning, we have an opportunity to not let it have control over the present. And as we're in this time together, as we focus our attention on the living God, we can experience health for our bodies and hope for our souls. What a gift. What a gift. What an exciting gift Sundays are. Out of God's wisdom, out of his love, out of his goodness to us, he gave us this special, special day. Now, last week, when we were together, we talked about how Sundays are a key element in giving our children a sense of God consciousness and a growing sense of redemption consciousness, i.e., their need for a relationship with the living God through repentance and through faith. And, you know, Sunday is a part of showing our children how to gain that posture of turning from self and sin and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what Sundays help us to do. It helps to refocus us and reground us in the person and work of Christ. Now, I just want to say, 
that if you weren't with us for any of these weeks, that you can go to our website, gracewaldorf.org. It's actually out there on the computer in the foyer. Click on Messages in the left-hand tab, and each of those messages are available for you to listen to. I think they're worth it if you missed one, because all of this stuff is good stuff, really, really good stuff. Well, today, we're actually going to pick up on the next strain of thought here, and we're going to talk about how Sundays can change your eternity. Or if I could actually put this in a different way, uh, it could actually be said like this. Sundays can change your life for the good forever. Sundays can change your life for the good forever. Today we get to talk about my favorite topic ever. I'm excited. I'm juiced. I'm ex- juiced. Get ready. Here we go. Today we're going to talk about the gospel. But before we do, we need to pray. I don't want any lights going out. I don't want any computers rebooting. Let's ask God for grace. Oh, good, good Father. Thank you so much for your generosity to us. Uh, Your love and your goodness is all around us. So often we just tend to push through life and not recognize the many, many good blessings that come from you. James says that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Sunday, today, is a good gift from you. And I just thank you that each person present here this morning is receiving this gift. And I pray as they receive this gift that you would help them to open it and find beauty in it, joy, rest for their bodies, and refreshment for their souls. Today, Father, I need your help. I so want to share the good news. Help me to do so. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen, amen. You know what? I love Sundays. <laughs> I just do. This was before this became my profession, mind you. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm paid to love Sundays today. You know, that's how that works, right? Yeah, because we, you work all week long and this is your big day. Yeah, I know. But long before I was ever paid to be good, I was good for nothing. I just want you to know that. I really was. I love Sundays. I've always loved the opportunity to get together with the people of God, the opportunity to get together and to wrap our minds around the great truths of Scripture. Because if you can ground yourself sufficiently in the good news, the gospel, your life will be radically different in every single way. Different in your destiny and different in how you live out every day because you're now operating out of a biblical perspective. Today, we're going to consider this wonderful truth called the gospel. What an awesome, awesome word the word gospel is. The word gospel is translated in our English from a Greek word that's actually kind of a putting together of two words. The word in the Greek language is something called ou, Angelion. Ou is a prefix. Angelion is the word. Now, the word ou simply means good. Good. How many of you ever heard of a eulogy? Yeah, a eulogy. It is the word eulogy. It is good words. And so when somebody gets up to speak on behalf of somebody who has passed away, we say good things about them, right? That's what a eulogy is. It means good words. So when it comes to this thing called the gospel, it is good. Ooh. Angelion. Angelion. It, it is a good announcement. It is a good pronouncement. 
It is good news. It, it is just wonderful truth. Now, the word euangelion is used in the New Testament 74 times. 74 times. Good news, good news, good news. Read all about it. Good news. It's full of good news. And so 74 times, about a dozen of those times, it comes off the lips of Jesus Christ. God's love gift to us spoke often of good news. It comes off the lips of Paul, the great man of the gospel, over 50 times. It also comes off the lips and off the pen of both James and Peter. Good news, good news, good news. How many could use some good news these days? Oh my gosh. If I hear one more allegation of sexual abuse or one more uh, talk of, of a, a computer server in emails, I'm going to vomit. It, it, it's just gotten that bad. All we do today is run in the gutter. All we do today is in this miry mess, all of the news outlets are just filled with this garbage. How many could use some really, really good news today? Oh my goodness. That's what we're going to do. Now, the good news from the Bible is not simply a, a good thing to listen to. You know, we turn on the news and we listen and it gives us, quote unquote, the news. But this is actually truth. Truth that can actually change our lives for the good. If we truly understand it and truly embrace it, it's not just good news. It leads to a great life and ultimately a great destiny. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start to get into some of these occurrences of the word euangelion. Now, sometimes when the Bible uses the term euangelion, gospel, good news, it is talking about something called the good news of Jesus's kingdom plan. So sometimes the word euangelion, good news, the great proclamation, is about Jesus's great kingdom plan in this world. Uh, one occurrence is found in Matthew 24 and verse 14. Jesus said, and this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Amen? And then the end will come. You see, Jesus is saying there's good news. And it's a good news about a kingdom plan. The outworking of mine in this world. And when it's gone to all parts of the earth and all peoples have had an opportunity to understand it and basically embrace it, when that day comes, the end will come. Now, the Apostle Paul, at the end of the book of Corinthians, put it this way. He said, then comes the end when he, Jesus, will deliver up the what? Of? Yeah. He will deliver up the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed every rule and every authority and power. So one of the, or some of the examples in the New Testament of the word euangelion, good news, great proclamation, is of this truth that God is working out his plan in this world. And it embraces the highest overarching theme in the entire Bible. This is called a meta-narrative. Jesus' kingdom plan is a meta-narrative. It is the 40,000-foot view of what God is doing in this world. 
It is the epic sweep of the Bible from before time till time is no more. It is about paradise and paradise lost. It is about a people redeemed and paradise regained. This is the stream of the truth of the Bible. This is the overarching truth that God wants us to understand. And it is this, God is in control. Let me say that again, because many of you doubt that. Not up here, but here. God is sovereign, and God is in control, and God is working out his good news, the kingdom plan, even in our day and age. Amen? We need to hear that because there's all kinds of other competing news out there, and all that competing news is getting us all excited and all anxious and fearful and angry and all that good stuff. Man, I have seen so many believers that have got such angst about what's going on. I feel like saying, and who's in control? His name is Jesus. We need to move away from this sense of somehow we have to make things happen to the reality he is the one who makes things happen. We need to move away from this idea that it's all in our control. It's called the illusion of control. Ultimately, he's the one who's in control. And that's what the gospel tells us. That's the news that we need to embrace and hear. We need to understand that God is sovereign and Satan and sin are ultimately going to be crushed and all injustices will be made right. Let me say that again. What about that server? What about those emails? What about all these harassments? All injustices will be made right either through the cross of Christ or through eternal condemnation as a penalty. Did you hear that? Everything will ultimately be made right. Nobody gets away with anything. Just want to calm you down. Just want to settle your emotions. Just want you to get a grasp of what the Bible teaches. God's divine decrees are going to move forward, and no amount of unbelief or Satan's raging can stop it. And this, dear ones, is where our hope lies. This is where our hope lies. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the good news that Jesus will come again, and he will establish his eternal kingdom, and nothing no, nothing, absolutely nothing will prevent that from happening. And all God's people said, you need to hear that. You need to hear that. In fact, somebody said it much better than I did. So let's listen to what he has to say. Let me tell you a story. It's no ordinary tale. No, it's the ordinary from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history. And I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, everlasting in existence. Completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing. He was happy in himself and his joy was overflowing. 
the Son in the arms of his holy righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create the fountain of all happiness? Can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within himself welling up at such capacity was so full it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share his infinite mind, his love, his joy, sat down to write his once upon a time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect his beauty and his worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees, all gladly testifying. Endless stars and galaxies declare his glory shining. He made it all and it was good. And to culminate his work, he fashioned man and breathed to life his special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and eat from any tree, except for this one, because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now, why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story, and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory. Conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best, running his lip. Flashback to when this evil was created. He was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated. Banished from God and from his endless mercy, he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy. So there in the garden on an ordinary day, he came to the woman and said, Did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden? He must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom. So pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends, this is injustice. That God should be seen and then treated as a nothing. That man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind and sure to face his judgment. A world of pain, of toil and strain and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of man, oh, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishment. Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life. We come to Abraham, and God made him a covenant. He said, I will bless you, make your offspring abundant. To Isaac and to Jacob, God would come and do the same, and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan, the story would go on with the author's full control, and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go. Flash forward now, 400 years, in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom. He made them slaves, but God came down and chose his servant Moses, a burning bush, a call to go. His presence was his promise. Moses, tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show. Plagues numerous. God will prove that he is the I am, that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand. The waters part, the millions leave to follow their great savior. He guided them, provided for them, though they were so ungrateful. At Sinai, God gave the law so perfect and so pure. His people soon discovered, though, they could not obey these rules. They tried, they failed, they tried, they failed, compelled to live in sin. They'd bow to worship idols and they'd bow to God again. They said to God, give us a king and that will make things better. God, their rightful king, assured them this would be a fetter. They insisted, God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him, some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets, turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink, they left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough and brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased, the people waited 400 years of silence. Enter our protagonist, mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly 
rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, unordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin, fully God. He was perfect, fully man. He was learning, different from all the others, but tempted just the same in every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to jump and he caused the blind to see. And unlike the religious leaders, he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem, not to be served, but to serve his haters and enemies. He loved, he gave, showed us the heart of the author. Claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be God. Despised and rejected, we esteemed him not. Conflict escalating now. It starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer, and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood, preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the Son of God? They say, I am. There's no denying, except, of course, for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky. He was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium, and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, Oh, Father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. The great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb to the slaughter. Would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three. It is finished. The Savior's cry. And then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God, is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet. As God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass. On the second morning after Jesus died, Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside. And when she arrived, she was met by an angel. She fell to the ground, but he said, there's no danger. This Jesus, Jesus, is he the one you seek? Mary, he is not here. He is risen indeed. Climax is true. Every good story has one. That part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive. He's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there. Perhaps he truly lives there. And Jesus' words came flashing to mind. They will kill the Son of Man, but after three days, he will rise. Momentum is surely building now. The enemy is limping. Jesus finds the 12, and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive. Go and tell the whole wide world, and don't get slack. I'm coming back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus, like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story is true. It's a story like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sale, and here we are, the 21st century, because the gospel cannot fail. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known, but there is some still left to go. Yes, there is some still left to go. 
see, go was the command to every tribe and nation to carry this great story to this dying generation. Because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth, we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return. Heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it, all his enemies shall fear. His eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory. Justice for all evil, life for all who love this story. He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades he will throw into the lake of fire and Satan too, that serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, worthy, worthy is the lamb, the lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name. And for ages and ages, we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the best news. Dear ones, God is in control. Our hope is not in an elected president, a nominated SCOTUS, or a sitting Congress. It is in the sovereign coming Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That is true. That is so true. We need to re-grasp this truth with our hearts and not just our heads. That is what Sundays are about. It's about gaining perspective on life and finding our hope and our joy in Christ, the sovereign coming King. I want to encourage you to continue to understand this kind of good news, the grand sweep of God's plan. The better we understand it, the better our testimony can be in a fallen and lost world. We have two great opportunities coming up uh, to help us embrace this and understand this wonderful sweep of Scripture. One is starting in two weeks on the evening of November the 6th, opposite our Awana hour from 5 to 7 p.m. We're going to be doing this thing called the Gospel Project. If you have children somewhere between 3 years old and 12th grade, you can put them into the program of Awana, and you can jump into this three-year journey through the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, understanding how the entire Bible reveals the plan of God's redemption and restoration through Jesus Christ. Every session will lead you to the gospel of Christ as a source of life transformation and the foundation for spiritual growth. Every session will challenge you to consider how the gospel compels us to live on mission every day. And by the end of the study, you will be able to identify and understand 99 essential uh, gospel theological doctrines of the Christian faith. And you will understand the Bible, the gospel, the good news. That is one opportunity. Let me give you a second opportunity, and it's coming up in two weeks. When we're done with this series called I Love Sundays, we're going to be doing a series called 
Seeing with the Eyes of Faith. It's a five-week series where we're going to talk about being able to view life through the Scripture, through the grid of God's Word, and have a biblical worldview. The topics that we are going to cover is, uh, in two weeks, faith is knowing beyond all other ways of knowing. Then on the 6th, we're going to talk about seeing myself as God sees me. And then somewhere after November 6th and between in there, there's something called an election that's going to happen. So on the 13th, we're going to talk about seeing my country as God sees it. Whatever the results of the election are, we're going to talk about how God sees things, lift our perspective up here and look down on what God is doing rather than just being in the mire and the muck and worrying and fretting and being angst about everything. I'm not doing that week. I've asked Matt Duransky to take that Sunday. He's going to open up the scriptures. He's a grad of Annapolis, a Navy man. He, he's been in industry. He's a brilliant Bible scholar. He's going to open up the scriptures for us on that day, uh, then seeing my neighbor as God sees them, and that on the 27th, we're going to talk about seeing eternity as God sees it. So, good news! Good news! Read all about it! God is in control. The good news of Jesus' kingdom plan. Now, let me just touch upon this other uh, way that euangelion is used. Sometimes when the word gospel or good news, euangelion, is used, it talks about the good news of Jesus' kingdom plan. But most of the time, when the Bible uses the word gospel, euangelion, good news, it is actually talking about the good news of Jesus' personal salvation for people. And so, the Bible says this, Jesus, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the, what's the word? The good news. Yes, good news. Saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is right here. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. And then later on, the apostle Paul, the great theologian he was, opened the book of Romans with these words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the good news, that this good news, is about how individuals can personally participate in God's grand plan, of how somebody can be a subject in God's kingdom, how we can be assured that we are on the winning side. This is where the, the plan of God in our lives intersect. The story of God in our lives are meant to intersect. And when they do, we discover this thing called salvation. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of give you a way of understanding this wonderful truth, this good news, in a way that maybe you've never really quite understood it before. Sometimes we share this good news through something called the four spiritual laws wonderful thing, through the Romans road, kind of working our way through the gospel of, or the book of Romans, or the bridge illustration. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to share this good news of Jesus's personal salvation using the same image we just looked at. And what I want you to see is not just the idea of creation and fall, redemption and, and restoration, that's the big plan. But I want you to see how we individually actually touch upon these truths for personal benefit. What does it mean to us, not just the grand plan? So looking at it like this, I want you to understand this about you, about the person sitting next to you, about the person you walk by in the street. 
This is the truth that the beginning tells us. It tells us of the glory of God. It tells us in the beginning of the Bible that God created humanity, you and me, us, for the express purpose to love us. Oh my gosh. The, the sovereign one, the king of all, God of God, the one who created all things, says, enjoy my glory. Come into my presence and, and, and look on my beauty and enjoy the presence of my holiness. Know me. Love me. Follow me. Serve me. This is what we were created for. The Bible puts it like this. It says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, the Godhead said, let us make man in our image after our likeness for relationship, for relationship. We were designed by God to find in God our lives. And you know, we all have that faint echo in our soul saying, there's more, there's more, there's got to be more. The Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. So we all have this sense of resonance that there's something else, there's more. Because the original state was actually lost. Then we move into what the Bible calls the time of sin, where humanity stepped into or away from God and chose their own path. I think Paul put it so well in Romans 3. Watch this. Paul said this in Romans 3. For all have sinned and have fallen short of what? The glory of God. You see, our original intent was to enjoy the presence of God, to stand in His holiness, to view His beauty. But because of sin and willfulness and because of selfishness, we willingly pulled away in our parents, Adam and Eve, and hence we have now lost the ability to behold that glory. We have come short of it because we have become willful. We have chosen rather to live our lives for ourselves rather than the, for the one who created us. So thanks to Adam and Eve, I don't think he's going to have a real big black eye when everybody gets to heaven. Thanks to Adam and Eve, we inherited a sinful nature. Their rebellion was passed on to us, and uh, we were all conceived in sin, the Bible teaches. We were born selfish and willful, separate from all that is good and all that is God. And we go on to prove this estrangement from God from the very moment we can talk. One of the first words we learn is, no, no. What is that? It's the showing of the little willful nature that we all possess. The second word beyond, I'm sorry, beyond mama, dada, is mine. Mine. No, mine. Mine. And then the moment kids can walk, they go their own way, don't they? They run away. That is exactly what we've done, and we prove it every time a child is born and starts to grow. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to death. The Bible makes it clear that the recompense for our sin our separation, our rebellion against God is eternal separation for the wages of sin is death. So, we were created for glory. Sin and rebellion is in our hearts and in our lives and it has caused a separation between us and God. That brings us to this thing called the cross. And in this, I want you to understand, perhaps in a way that you never have, the love of God. You see, we rebelled against him, but he loved us. And so we ran our own way. And so God took the initiative and did everything necessary to win and woo us back so that we could again enjoy his glory and live for him the way we were intended. 
I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. He said this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners running away from God, he sent his son Christ to die for us. What love. What love. I have to pause here. Talked about glory, talked about the problem of sin, talked about the issue of love. You see, until we understand this, we don't truly know, we don't truly understand what our response is supposed to be. It's until you understand the truth behind God's love that you will really begin to understand the response that should give to us salvation and eternal life. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you about God's love for just a couple minutes. The Bible says, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, these words. In this. In this. Is love. It's not that we have loved God, but rather God has loved us and he has sent his son to be the propitiation. The propitiation for our sins. What on earth is a propitiation? Well, uh, a propitiation simply means this. It is to turn away wrath by the death of an innocent, suitable sacrifice. It is to turn away wrath, the rightful judgment of God on sin, through the death of an innocent, suitable sacrifice. And so the Bible says this, surely he, Isaiah 53, Isaiah, uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. The idea is to be smacked, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world, the Bible says. God himself, in the person of Christ, comes for us. And it says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him at any moment. In fact, he is the one, the Bible says, he holds the world together by the word of his power. And at any moment, he could have simply said, enough! and all the atoms would have come apart, the worlds would have melted, he would have gone back to be with his father, and we would be nothing. But he didn't. He didn't. It says this. It was the will of God. It was the love of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for our guilt. That's love. That's love. You see, only when you understand love will we know the true response. And the true response that should come from us when we understand this love is simply this. 
Acts 17 and verse 30 says this, Now he, God, commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. If you understand love, you know that there's nothing in your life that merits it. There's nothing good in you that God says, I'm going to just kill my son for you. No. He did it freely and fully for sinners like you and me. And our response when we embrace and understand that kind of love is to repent. I'm going to end with this great definition of repentance. It's a necessary step in truly grasping salvation. Repentance means turning. Turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of God. That is what the Bible says should be our response in light of God's love. Turning from my sin, embracing Him as best I know how. Right now, uh, as we conclude this morning, good news, good news. Today is the day you have an opportunity to step into the story of God to be on the winning side and to know for sure that you're a subject in his kingdom. And it begins with repentance and faith in Christ. So I'm going to bow my head right now. I would like everybody else to do the same. And if you have never made this commitment to Christ, if you've never given over your life and surrendered to him, if you've never just been enveloped by his love and submitted to it, now is your great chance. I want to encourage you to do so. Right now, in the presence of God, from your heart of hearts, you could express something like this. Again, these are just words. Let them be true for you and not just mine. Dear God, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your willingness to send your own son, the son of your love, the second member of the Trinity, to die for me. Who am I, oh God? Who am I to receive such a gift? Right now, oh God, as best as I look at my own life, I see, I see my sin, I see my rebellion, I see my running from you. I see the, the things I'm choosing that I know are wrong. Right now, as best as I understand, I turn from my sin, oh God. And I turn to you and I wrap the arms of faith around you. As much as I understand, oh God, I want you. I want you in my heart. I want you in my life. And I want to live to know you. Father, Father, thank you for being my Father. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe. Jesus' name. Father, bring this truth home to hearts today, and may there be angels rejoicing in heaven as a result of somebody today surrendering to pure love. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, amen.